Hello, and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. Since it first launched as a streaming service back in 2013, Netflix has become as ubiquitous feature of modern cultural life as Spotify or Facebook. By the end of March this year, the channel had 221.6 million subscribers worldwide, reaching every country on the globe apart from China, North Korea, Syria, and now Russia. From Squid Games to Stranger Things, Bridgerton to the Tiger King, it's changed both how we watch TV and also the kind of TV that we watch. However, the company's share price recently tumbled and 150 jobs raxed after Netflix announced the loss of some 200,000 subscribers and warned that it expects to lose a further 2 million customers in the next three months. What has gone wrong so quickly for the streaming giant and how can it get us subscribing and signing in once again? Joining me in the bunker today to answer these questions is The Guardian's tech editor, Alex Hearn. Welcome to the bunker, Alex. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for having me. So firstly, what did Netflix actually announce recently and was it expected? So Netflix announced the loss of 200,000 subscribers. It, it's not much in the grand scheme of things. You know, it's, it's significantly less than 1% of its subscriber base. But this is a company and this is an industry that expects those numbers to go up basically forever. If you have a subscriber loss, if you have even subscriber stagnation, that is that is bad. Poor Netflix, this, this proximal cause, this thing that sparked the crisis at the company isn't exactly their fault. The 200,000 subscribers they lost, the difference between a loss and a gain is because they pulled out of Russia, right. losing about one and a half million subscribers in Russia. They did that voluntarily. They did it before sanctions bit, but that was the thing that tipped them over. It wouldn't have been good even if they had stuck around in Russia. And like you say, they're, they're expecting to lose more customers over the coming year. But that initial cause has become the sort of the, the spark that's led to a lot of people reconsidering where the company stands in the in the modern media ecosystem. And you mentioned there that there's an expectation of perpetual growth around a company like Netflix, and until now it has fulfilled that. But evidently something's gone wrong in that model recently. So is it so much that Netflix as kind of a company or a product is slowing down, or is it more to more to do with Wall Street's expectations and analysis, do you think? The top level, the, the, the biggest, most important thing for the company, I'd say is neither, actually. Right. The, the problem that Netflix has is that it's running out of human beings. It's not a company like Facebook. It doesn't have the problem that there is a, a fixed number of like humans in the world who can join the site. Facebook with 2 billion users literally cannot double its user base more than three times without like massively increasing birth rates worldwide. There's just not enough people in the world for there to be that many more Facebook accounts. Netflix doesn't have that problem. 200 million, well, there's, there's still 9.8 billion people around the world who could sign up. But it does have a separate problem and a related problem, which is that most of those people don't have a fast internet connection. It's really starting to reach the limit of how fast it can grow internationally based on just people who are online with broadband and ideally a you know smart TV or similar setup at home so that they can watch their premium streaming service on a TV. That number of people, it appears, is actually pretty close to about the 220 million people that Netflix have. It, it's not, but it means that Netflix has to fight harder and harder for every extra customer. In its early days, the company could quite literally flick a switch and get 10 million new subscribers by signing up a new developed nation to Netflix. You know, going from a US-only company to a US and UK company 
gives it instantly a potential 70 million new customers. That sort of growth just isn't there for the company. And and that's the, the top line of its problem. Even before you get into issues that we're seeing now of difficulties with retaining subscribers in those developed nations where it already has a large user base, problems with password sharing that means that it's going to have to work harder to convert some of the people who are already used to watching Netflix into paying subscribers, and then large and growing competition from other streamers and from public service broadcasters around the world who now are able to compete pretty well on the turf of like usability, experience, the actual tech that underpins this whole thing, where once upon a time Netflix had an incredible lead. The numbers around tech firms are often opaque at best. In broad terms, is Netflix actually successful? I mean, it's obviously a huge cultural presence, but does it make money? Yeah, Netflix is a profitable company. It's It's got a relatively solid business case of taking money from customers at one end and using that money to pay for usually exclusive in-house productions and strongly licensed for global distribution external shows that business works and it, it is turning over a steady profit even now the problem is it's been valued not like a you know moderately profitable media business but like a high growth tech business and there simply being you know comfortably profitable every quarter isn't enough you also need to be showing this massive growth as netflix has lost that growth investors are basically changing how they think of the company. They're no longer comparing it to peers like Facebook and Apple. They're comparing it to companies like Bertelsmann AG and Paramount. Pretty solid, highly valued, but not tech-valued media conglomerates. You mentioned before the issue of password sharing and you know multiple users being in one account. This is obviously in the news recently when Nadine Doris got caught out at the <laughs> Select Committee when she admitted to sharing her Netflix account with four other households. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of a problem is that for the company, or do they just price it into their structures? So, I mean, the, the Doris thing is fantastic because you say caught out. She she volunteered the information unprompted. It's uh, a fantastic example of. Let's let's say it is the level of tech savviness within DCMS. Doris was was offered that information up as an example of how she thought Netflix was fantastic value. In her defense, that's a widely held perception of Netflix. There there is a, a belief that Netflix tacitly allows password sharing to make it a better value product, to help people develop effectively a Netflix habit when they are, say, students away from home to help make sure that people who perhaps couldn't afford or wouldn't want to take the jump for a full membership still get used to watching Netflix regularly. And then the company's unspoken policy has always been that it will try and encourage them to get a full subscription themselves by doing things like limiting the number of devices that can watch at the same time. Now, though, Netflix argues that the number of households who are sharing their passwords, which numbers in the tens of millions in the UK and US alone, that that is itself a genuine cap on growth, that there are tens of millions of households who show by using it that they like Netflix, but who are not paying for it. And the company wants to fix that. The problem is it's hard. You can be increasingly aggressive about things like multiple users logged in at the same time, but Netflix already has a cap on how much you can stream on the same account. 
you can start trying to copy something from Spotify and asking people, you know, effectively trivia questions about where the account holder is based. You can try and use IP addresses to work out if everyone's in different geographical centers, but that doesn't really work very well if people are expecting to be able to watch on the move. So Netflix's only real option here is a carrot rather than a stick. They've started trialing the ability to basically pay an add-on a couple of dollars a month on top of your Netflix fee to bring another household into it. It's not what the company would like. The company would like all of these people to be paying a new full price subscription, but it's clearly better than just throwing their hands up and, and dismissing that revenue entirely. Netflix has been through several incarnations already. I mean, people tend to forget Mm -hmm. that it was originally a DVD hire business before moving to video on demand and then to some extent becoming a content production studio. Is there a sense it may be due another reboot? And if so, is there any sense of what shape that might take? Yeah, absolutely. The big change that we're expecting to see that, that Netflix CEO Reed Hastings announced a same earnings call where, where they admitted to the disaster to come is that Netflix might adopt an ad supported model. The company's long been sort of vehemently opposed to advertising offering as it does, you know, effectively a premium service. It's something that isn't what you get on YouTube. It's not what you get if you watch American cable television. It is, it's trying to position itself as a peer of American services like HBO that don't have advertising. They're fully funded by subscribers. The argument now is that there is a substantial number of households who can't afford even the lowest price tier of Netflix. And so an ad-supported option that would be maybe $4 a month in America, for instance, could help grow out that user base, could help carve out some value, and could help provide a way of getting in on the ground floor. And then if people are annoyed by the adverts, perhaps they'll scrape up some money to raise up to one of the higher tiers, to to go ad-free or even to go HD or 4K. From a tech writer's perspective, why do you think Netflix has achieved such dominance and market share? Because, I mean, there's no shortage of streaming and on-demand services. But with the exception of iPlayer over here, which is a very different model, None of them seem to have cut through in the way Netflix has. Mm -hmm. A lot of it, you know, a lot of it has to just go to being first. Netflix was really forward on this. At the time when its model was DVD rentals posted out and, you know, returned through the postal service, it built out this tech for streaming movies and TV shows. It, It built that without a clear consumer demand. You know, you have to remember this, we're talking about the mid 2000s when this service launched. Broadband was relatively low penetration. People with household setups that let them pump anything online onto their TV were were pretty rare. And yet Netflix was there, not only building the tech to do this, but signing the licensing agreements that, you know, that let it have a relatively sizable catalog. That was seen as a bit of a joke. And Yet Netflix was incredibly aggressive on it. It it even tried to spin off its DVD rental service into a a new company called Quickster long before it was like a dead business. It had a very profitable DVD rental service that Netflix nonetheless wanted to not quite shut down, but wash its hands off. It saw that the future was streaming. Then, you know, that, that was step one. Step two, in the UK in particular, one of Netflix's saving graces was that Ofcom kiboshed an attempt from the BBC, ITV, and Channel 4 to build a homegrown equivalent. The BBC had managed to get permission to build iPlayer, but a program called Project Kangaroo was this this 
grand goal to build a unified streaming service for all of the UK's public service broadcasters. Ofcom decided that that was unfair competition to the private sector and blocked it. This again, almost 20 years ago, it would have put the UK at the forefront of, of this. It would We would still be leading now, probably. But instead, we had to be fair to Netflix. We couldn't use the license fee to fund something that would unfairly compete with Netflix. And so when Netflix launched in the UK, it and what is now Amazon Prime Video were basically the only two streamers. It's hard to remember now, but like the introduction of streaming, especially as broadband, as smart TVs built some penetration, was an, an absolutely huge revolution in usability. It feels very stupid to sort of spell it out, but but before we had streaming services, you couldn't just sit down and watch anything you wanted. At that time, sort of box sets were the big push in the UK. You know, if you if you were the sort of person who didn't want to be beholden to linear TV, you would either have an expensive Sky Plus box that could record live TV, or you probably worked your way through DVD box sets. You might have been getting increasingly reliant on iPlayer. But the BBC was limited by licensing rules and by its own sense of not wanting to undercut broadcast television to only keeping shows on it for a certain window. That meant that Netflix was basically the only place where you could sit down and have the entire catalogue of a streaming service available at the touch of a button. And I think that alone put it in a real pole position for quite some time. And then the third thing, you know, Netflix's history is of doing a lot of things right. And the third thing was investing and investing heavily in original content. Again, long before it seemed like the obvious thing to do. When House of Cards came out some 10 years ago, that was a, you know, absolute top tier prestige drama on a service where the general understanding was that by far the best way to make money was for Netflix to just license other people's shows. Pay, pay a fee to the company that made the show, put it on your service. If the fee gets too high, take it off the service and, and move on. But Netflix saw what was coming, which was that there would be more streaming services. They would all have this, this bedrock of cheaply licensed shows made by third parties and that it would be the exclusives that would drive adoption. And for the last 10 years, that's been Netflix's model. It's been pay for these exclusives, get things that you can't watch anywhere else, and also make the most of that backlist. You only have to pay once for an exclusive show, and yet it stays around on your service forever. If you've never joined Netflix and you're thinking of doing it today, you still have all of House of Cards, all of Stranger Things, all of Russian Doll to watch. They're still sitting there, and the company doesn't have to pay an annual licensing fee. From that point, what do you think started to go wrong with Netflix? I think where the wheels started to come off that is as Netflix started to believe its own bullshit. Its model of develop exclusives, pump them out, give people something that they can only get on Netflix, started to become, rather than the quality play it had been, rather than this idea of make three or four shows a year, all of which are potential award winners, it became, well, we have so much data on our customers that we know exactly what they want. We have so much money in the bank that we can make hundreds of shows a year. So let's just do it. Let's make... 100, 200 shows a year, each laser-targeted laser at a particular demographic. And uh, you know, I'm sure anyone here who subscribes to Netflix has, has seen the outcome, which is that a Netflix original has stopped being a hallmark of a prestige drama, a prestige comedy that is you know, something that you can only watch on Netflix. And it started being, for the most part, a hallmark of, of mid-tier dross, of something that is 
memorable while you're watching it, will be forgotten the second you turn it off. Something that you're ambivalent as to whether or not there's even another series of. And if there is, you know it will be cancelled after two series anyway, because that's also what Netflix does. It commissions things for two series, kills them and moves on to the next thing. I think what the company is going to learn and what its competitors are showing is that when it comes to original content, a smaller, tighter vision is perhaps a better long-term play than trying to offer something for everyone, than trying to make sure that every time they open the service, there's five new shows to watch. Even if people close it because there's nothing they want to watch right now, that's not the end of the world for a streaming service. And and I think that's going to be Netflix's big sort of self-discovery to take. You mentioned some of the competitor services there, like Amazon Prime, there's Apple TV. Even if they've not been as successful, those other services are squeezing Netflix from different angles in different ways. Mm-hmm. What are some of those other operators doing which is working and which of them is the biggest threat to Netflix, do you think? So in one sense, the biggest threat is actually Amazon Prime Video. It's it's biggest in pure numbers. It's the only other one in the UK that comes close to Netflix's penetration because it's bundled in free with Amazon Prime, the, the e-commerce site's free shipping program. That means that it sort of occupies this weird middle ground where a huge number of households have it, have access to it. Many don't even know that. And those that do know it often have to be prompted to remember that they can watch it. But that said, it, you know, it, it is a real problem because if you are starting to fall behind or fall out of favor with the content that you're offering people and they're thinking, well, should I keep Netflix or should I not? The minute they remember that if they cancel Netflix, they've still got not only the free BBC iPlayer, ITV player and 4OD, but also the free Amazon Prime Instant Video, Netflix starts to seem an awful lot less crucial to that household budget. At the other end, the two competitors that are really sort of eating up Netflix's original model, that model that brought it success of focusing on a few prestige shows dripped out over time, are Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus. Each of them takes a very similar model, which is, well, like I say, it's that goal of only putting out a few programs at once, making sure that every single one of them is... (sighs) as best you can, high quality, but certainly prestige, a lot of focus given to it, a lot of attention given to it. And then be content in the knowledge that sometimes you might not have something new for everyone. Disney Plus doesn't have new content dropped on it every day. It doesn't have multiple series dropped on it every week. Neither does Apple TV Plus. What they try and do instead is make sure that at any given time, there is one show that's the big show that people are talking about. For Disney Plus, that's usually a Star Wars or a Marvel show. For Apple TV, it's more idiosyncratic, but generally kind of HBO feeling prestige dramas or comedies. So you've got Severance, you've got the uh, Isaac Asimov series Foundation, you've got For All Mankind. These are big budget shows that people who get into them really love. And if you're watching it as an episode comes out once a week, you're not going to cancel it, even if you're only watching one episode a week. Those services, Actually, they're going to get that same flywheel that Netflix did. They're going to build up this backlist of powerful original content, and they're not encouraging people to view them just by what's new this week, but to view them by sort of the the slate of great shows on it. And if the Netflix board announced tomorrow that a new CEO was one, Alex Hearn, formerly of The Guardian, what would be your immediate plan for fixing the channel? You know, I it's that I wouldn't start here thing. 
I'm really not sure there is a, an easy, painless way to fix a company whose single biggest problem is effectively that it is one monolithic TV and film studio that makes 200 shows and films a year, all of which seem to have quite a lot of centralized sign-off. You know, this is not independent studios operating semi-autonomously in each market Netflix is in. This is a pretty centralized body that's just churning out far, far more content than anyone can feasibly do a quality check on. You can say, well, then cut the studios, but you also can't go from a business that makes 170, 180 shows a year to one that makes 10 without enormous pain, both in terms of the, you know, the job losses that that would ensue and trying to tell the story to investors that says, it may look like we're downsizing and shrinking rapidly, but this is actually good for your shares, not bad. I think something went a bit wrong at Netflix four or five years ago. It really started to believe its own narrative. And I don't see a, a painless way out of the hole it's dug itself. And finally, thanks to its shall we say, unwieldy search engine and rather pushy algorithm. The same handful of big shows always seem to get recommended when you go into Netflix. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you'd personally recommend, which is a bit more of a deep cut that you think listeners should check out? <laughs> Not that much of a deep cut, but enough. I'd say the French comedy drama Call My Agent, originally Dupontson, is fantastic and is probably better than the English language remake, which has just started airing in the UK. I think David Chang's food show, Ugly Delicious, is just a fantastic watch. It, it didn't get many series, and I'm not even sure it's a Netflix original, but in the UK, that's the streaming service it's on. It's American chef David Chang, who founded the Momofuku restaurant chain, just going around, eating nice stuff and being enthusiastic about food, which is all I really want from a cooking show. My own recommendation also from France would be the film Le Divine from about five years ago, which is absolutely mind-blowing it's like a female version of la hen won the mm. newcomer prize it can it's absolutely brilliant alex thank you so much for joining me on the bunker today thank you for having me justin listeners remember there's a new bunker daily every wednesday thursday and sunday with start your week on mondays the main panel show on tuesdays and the culture bunker on saturdays be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes if you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp? You can also back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thank you for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese with assistant production by Alina Ganatra. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.